Hello, this is Zach Berger in my podcast, Sholem's Bias, Medicine and Other Curiosities, where I talk with people about things that interest me and them. And today, uh, I am very pleased to have Josh Garoon on the line with me. He is an assistant professor in the Department of Community and Environmental Sociology at the University of Wisconsin. So uh, thanks very much for, for taking the time to chat. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And um, I wanted to talk to you about the work you're doing about health and neighborhoods and aging in Baltimore. And, sure. and I, you know, I know that you're doing work on how people, how individuals um, direct and, and use, for lack of a better word, trust in their neighborhoods. And, uh, and I, maybe you could talk in, in, in general or in specific about the work you're doing and how sociology contributes to understanding that. Sure. So a little bit of the background, I, I have to give credit to Sarah Stanton over at the School of Nursing because this is really part of a, a project that she's doing called CAPABLE. Uh, I'm not going to remember what that acronym stands for, but uh, the, the idea is to intervene on the physical environment that older people in Baltimore who are aging in place or aging in the community, as they say, so not moving to a senior home, not moving to uh, any sort of institutional setting, but staying in an apartment or a house that they own or they rent. Uh, and the idea was to fix up, especially for homeowners, fix up homes that they live in to help them with activities of daily living uh, and prevent injuries or falls to, to make their homes a, a healthier place to age. And so I got involved with her project uh, because she saw the opportunity to do oral histories and interviews with the older people in her study. And we wanted to go beyond just say, asking people about their houses and, and asking about broader environments in their neighborhoods in the city of Baltimore uh, where they lived throughout their life, and uh, so, so that's the context. Um, the, the sort of broader context of all of this is that in public health, uh, the idea of healthy aging uh, has clear uh, importance, especially in the United States right now. It's sort of common knowledge, I think, that we're in a rapidly aging society, that mm -hmm. the population pyramid is rectangularizing. Mm -hmm. More and more older people, especially relative to younger people in the United States, mm -hmm. uh, population growth slowing a bit. And so there's this concern about what it means to grow old in mm -hmm. a healthy way. Mm -hmm. Part of that's physical and part of that's also mental. Mm -hmm. And one of the big keys that public health researchers are really insisted upon is social engagement or social participation is, is a big part of that. And one of the concerns about particularly older, poor, often minority people aging in place, in places like Baltimore, is the lack of trust mm -hmm. that they have in their neighborhood and the, the limits that might put on their social engagement. So there have been a lot of studies, quantitative and qualitative, about trust in one's neighbors, which is this idea of, of particularized trust is, is the jargon that gets used a lot in the literature and generalized trust, more uh, do you trust people in general? Mm -hmm. This idea of particularized trust and, and trust in people who you live next to, your neighbors, is, is a really, uh, it's become a big deal and there have been all sorts of correlation and causation studies trying to tie that in with health and, and to tie it in with social engagement and try to figure out what pathway uh, that runs through. So that's where my work really came in. Yeah. And, in terms of background. Right. And, and tell me institutions like churches for example would mm -hmm. be particular or general or fall somewhere in between or well so that's where it gets interesting because
because churches, say a trust in an institution like a church or like a government, doesn't really fall into either category. And this is where sociology and political science tend to come more into play. Uh, there have been some studies in public health that have looked at trust in institutions generally or specifically, or trust in systems, but that's not not really been a focus. And, and in fact, this is uh, part of what Tom Glass at the School of Public Health at Hopkins calls part of the shut-in by design problem, which is that when we do these neighborhood studies of people aging in place, we sort of tend to make the assumption that they stay in their neighborhoods 24-7. We don't do a good job of tracking their life activities or, mm-hmm. or the spaces they move through on a daily or weekly or monthly basis. And so we really can't say very much about how those activities influence their health. And that's, as, as I think you're, you're leading into, something that, that the work we were doing wanted to address square on is what happens when we start taking into account the way that people put trust not just in their neighbors, uh, but also in institutions and in systems throughout the city. And what, what would that do to, sort of, to a study that only looked at particularized or generalized trust? How might that complicate things? Mm-hmm. And, and how did you go about asking people about that? Uh, indirectly. So th- the, this whole idea actually came up as we interviewed these participants in the studies repeatedly over time. So we didn't just do one, say, 60 or 90 minute interview. We actually tend to do four or five or six or seven uh, for reasons that, that have to do with study design. But we wound up just having hours and hours of time to interview these people. And we wound up with a sample that was mainly African-American women. And so we were able to really sort of richly characterize the lives of these women from childhood, as they were called it at least, up to the present day. And we, we didn't really ask them, oh, who do you, whom do you trust or what do you trust? Do you trust your pastor? Do you trust your church congregants? We wound up asking them questions about their lives. And then as they described them, they, they more or less volunteered that, that information as embedded in the stories they were telling and the narratives about themselves that they were giving us. And then we were able to follow up and say, oh, that, you say you switch churches. Why did you switch churches? Oh, you know, I, I found myself not not really feeling like I was as connected to a pastor, to the congregation, I didn't really, and then, you know, terms like trust would come in, or, or synonyms for trust would come in, I didn't feel confident in them, things like that. Uh, and the same sorts of things would come up about their neighborhood, about certain people in their neighborhoods, or groups of people in their neighborhoods. Consistently we heard about, say, a, a lack of trust in younger neighbors compared to older ones, mm-hmm. uh, or, or different social relationships that they had with, say, younger people in their neighborhoods. And again, these are mostly low-income, mostly African-American women, so they're living, as is so often the case, in hyper-segregated Baltimore in low-income neighborhoods. Uh, and they're in neighborhoods with lots of, lots of black people, uh, mm-hmm. like, uh, like themselves in terms of race and ethnicity descriptions, in terms of the category. But as we found out through these interviews, people that they didn't see like themselves in terms of not just age, but life history, values, things like that. And these, these are in their words, what, what they were describing is reasons for social distance between themselves and their neighbors. And what, what, um, what, what sorry, what were, so re- go ahead. What, what were some of those reasons in, in how, when, how did the, these older, mostly uh, African-American women look on with mistrust on these younger members of their community was is that was it a generational gap was it that they thought they were you know they were you know out to get them in some way what was what would underlie that it was more of a generational gap so there are a couple things there's there's a generational gap in terms of 
not feeling like they could relate to, you know, some of the livelihoods that young people were engaged in. So a lot of the participants, the majority of the participants, told stories of their neighborhoods back when they were younger, when they were kids, when they were young adults, when they were raising their own families, as places where teachers and doctors and lawyers and nurses lived. Mm-hmm. And now, you know, in, in the present situations they're in, many of them in those exact same neighborhoods, they're telling stories about uh, young boys on corners, young being relatives, right? Teenagers often, young 20s is how they would, what they would say when they were guessing at their ages, on corners, and with the assumption or, or sometimes the explicit comment that they were selling drugs. Mm-hmm. Uh, or people operating uh, what the sociologist Sidir Venkatesh calls off-the-books businesses. So the, the, the quote-unquote garage across the street where a couple guys are fixing up cars and getting money for that, or the person across the street is running a daycare or a hair salon, and these are not the same professional or professionalized activities that they had grown up around. So there's a generational gap there. There's a feeling that these weren't as respectable. There's a respectability politics that I definitely think enters into it. But I also think that there's a sense of, of a lost reciprocity in which uh, these older adults, on, on the whole, no longer saw themselves as being seen as resources by their neighbors in the same way. Uh, which is to say for their wisdom, for, for their age, for what they've accumulated, for the advice they could give, but we're still feeling as if they were resources for other things. So uh, for, for things from money to food, and not just asking for them to give money free, but uh, I'll mow your lawn, and as one of the participants that, that I personally interviewed and spent a lot of time with said, it, in, in the old days, according at least to this person, An older woman in her position could expect a teenager to come and offer to say shovel snow or mow the lawn, um, or to take out the trash if they knew that the older person needed some help. And in this situation, it become a source of cash, a a source of a a way to make money to offer um, mow your lawn for X number of dollars. And this is person sharply retorted, "I'll do it myself for X for for no dollars. I need to pay you X number of dollars." Right. And and there is a resentment, I think, that expressed that. Uh, there wasn't more of a reciprocity. A, yeah, a reciprocity, or even sort of a gift economy going on, where it's known that there's a quid pro quo. It's known that there are exchanges, but the exchanges aren't all calculated out. It's not all put in terms of cash immediately on the spot. So that I do X for you, and immediately you turn around and give me Y uh, as, as compensation for that, as opposed to a an older model that they discussed, where if you did something nice for a neighbor the neighbor would bake you a cake or, you know, the next time the neighbor had something else or, or that, that, that might help you or they could do a, a do you do you a solid, basically, that they would do that for you. Um, not out of complete altruism, but because of the social networks that have sprung up in that way. And uh, so, is it the thought of these, these people that were interviewed that, I mean, I don't know how often they, they voice their opinions of why this was happening, just because these are now economies of scarcity in these neighborhoods and so people need the money or is it because there's a larger commodification of society they, they, they see or what's what's their opinion? I think, they, I think they see those two as interconnected. I definitely think that we got a lot of comments that were broader, that were more of a macro scale about uh, jobs and companies moving out of Baltimore and unemployment and broader ideas about how that was affecting the nation as a whole and particularly black people as a whole. Uh, and I think within the neighborhoods, there was also very much a sense that the professionals had moved out um, whenever they, they had had the opportunity and the neighborhoods had, had been disinvested. And we got pretty sophisticated responses to questions that were not designed to get at 
say the processes of segregation and hypersegregation or redlining. And you know, it should come as no surprise that people were very aware that those processes had taken place over their lifetimes. And you know, to, to circle this back to the idea of trust, you, you did get a lack of trust in those systems expressed, the systems that had made mortgages or houses unavailable to people in certain parts of the city, so they wound up living in the neighborhoods in which we were interviewing them, not necessarily by choice. And people were still, after 40, 50 years, somewhat unhappy about that. Uh, they wanted to stay in their neighborhood, but they also weren't expressing great joy that they had, had to move to that neighborhood to begin with. Um, so, so you have that, that lack of trust in systems that comes into play, at least in certain systems. And then, and, and this is the, to get to sort of the core argument of the paper, you have adaptive responses to that lack of trust in systems and in, in the neighbors that they found themselves surrounded by over time which is not to, to actually socially disengage in the way the literature sometimes suggests, but actually to find different ways to engage, whether in different places. For example, by keeping close ties with the church in a different part of the city or finding meaningful volunteer or other engagement in different parts of the city or investing within their own neighborhoods and in, by becoming parts of neighborhood associations and leading taking leading roles in the neighborhood. And those decisions were very contingent and very adaptive. And they were often predicated on processes of, of trust and mistrust. So trust turning to mistrust, mistrust turning to trust. But the, the, the argument we're, we're pushing is that too often in the literature that tries to look at these connections between trust and social engagement help you end up putting people in the categories, right? They answer your questions on a scale of zero to five or mm -hmm. a binary of zero and one, mm -hmm. and then they become a trusting person or a not trusting person. Right. And then you look at their health outcomes and you say, ah, people who are more trusting have better health outcomes. Right. And if you get really sophisticated, you go beyond the person to the neighborhood. Oh, people who are more trusting in a not very trusting neighborhood where a lot of the people around them are not very trusting have bad health outcomes relative to someone who's trusting in the trusting environment. Right. But if you're not trusting in the trusting environment, you still get a benefit out of that, or at least that's what some of the literature has found. But it's all, it's all very categorized, right? A neighborhood or a person is trusting or not trusting. Right. And even if it changes over time, they're trusting or not trusting at that point in time. And what we're arguing is that this, that actually misses where the action is, which is how people come to be trusting and not trusting and what those in certain places in certain times about certain things and what those those states uh, those 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 states rather than traits lead them to do in terms of social engagement uh, and that that's something that we feel like is is really getting uh, not enough attention particularly when you start thinking about okay well mistrust is unhealthy right that's what we concluded this not not having trust or being distrustful is unhealthy. And what we're arguing is for these women, at least, in these situations, although no one wants to see them in a situation in which they don't trust their neighbors or they don't trust, you know, the, no one wants to say, oh, segregation was healthy because it led to a mistrust that led people to be activists, and that's good, mm -hmm. either for them or their communities. That, that's not the argument. But the argument is once, once you condition on those life histories, those trajectories, mistrust can actually be healthy. There is such a thing as a healthy mistrust where people are acting not just rationally, but in their own best interest in terms of health and other things. 
in terms of saying, well, I'm not going to place my trust in these people or this system uh, because of the following reasons that I've experienced. And instead, I'm going to look for other places to invest my time and my trust and my energy. And we argue that this, for these women, they say that this is a good thing. And by all the evidence we can collect, they're right, that this is a good thing in their lives, a, a, a good, a, a positive health factor for them. I am. Um... I, this this reminds me of a person, obviously not in your study, but a, a patient of mine, who I'm not revealing anything about, to say that she, um, for many years, uh, used a lot of substances and and hung with a crowd that used substances, and mm-hmm. and she found Jesus, and um, now is in a different crowd in a church. Apparently, I forget. I think the church is not in her immediate geographic neighborhood, mm-hmm. and she really depends on this church and has been very active in it. And at the same time, so see, see clearly, I don't know if she uses the word explicitly, but I think trust this church and the people that belong to it. And she has deliberately torn herself off from her previous community and does not trust those people anymore, which at the same time has been very, has been a wrenching transformation for her, I think, just talking to her about it, but I think it's also been very adaptive for her. And uh, it's very interesting that she is, I guess by any definition, Asian place. She hasn't moved, you know, right. she, the same house. But different, definitely a different sort of person, or at least a relationship to, to people that's different. And you know, I think by any measure, this particular person is stable, and she, you know, she was in the same building, and and you know, has a number of health conditions, but is coping. And so it's very interesting how she's maybe maybe it's not just navigating and trust. She's done, done a lot of different things and made a lot of different changes in her life. But she's definitely chosen who to invest time and energy in. Um, yeah, it, it, exactly. And I, I, I think, you know, uh, to say a couple things about that, I, I think, you know, we're, we're always cautious, as, as you always have to be in the scholarship. We did a small study. We don't want our, our conclusions to, uh, to outstrip what we can say based on, based on the evidence that we have. Uh, but I do think that, you know, it, it certainly gives cause for thinking about ideas that disconnects with like in, in the substance abuse world, the people, places, and things thesis, which is that you know, successful uh, abstinence, you know, going into recovery, going into treatment, and staying off drugs, maintaining your, your abstinence from, from drugs or whatever the addiction is to, uh, is helped. It may not require getting away from the people, places, and things, but that's certainly a big part of what's now accepted, that these people, places, and things can serve as uh, slopes to relapse or triggers for relapse and so making new positive connections is important um, and and so again there's a sense in which there you are asking people contrary to almost everything else that we see in public health to sort of mistrust or, or to, to divorce oneself from from the people and places and things that you knew and to make new social connections elsewhere and I think that's really part of what intrigues me about this is where do neighborhoods fit into that? If you stay in a neighborhood, uh, you know, if you can't get away in some ways from, say, the places and things, can you still get yourself away from the people? Or is there something powerful about the people still in that place? Or about the places and things? And I think we're just now getting to a point where the methodologies and the theories are catching up with sort of the broader frameworks of investigating that. So in the case of your patient, is she is is her health fine? Is she is she okay staying where she is overall? All things considered, would she be happier doing that, or should there be some sort of prescription for 
a new apartment or a new house or trying to get her out out of where she is. And, you know, this connects to the sort of work that Rudge Chetty and the Moving to Opportunity economists and sociologists have been doing, which is, are you better off getting people mobile and getting them out of these environments that affect their health and other parts of their lives negatively? And if you say yes, then what does that mean for all of the attention that we've given to neighborhood improvement, you know, to trying to improve both the social and physical conditions of those neighborhoods? Because you know, moving people out leaves this open question of who's left behind, if anyone, and what do you do with that neighborhood? And I, I think that's, that becomes a really important question as we, as we look at the increasing emphasis on mobility and getting people out of cities. And I think... What, what, when you say when you talk about or push back uh, against categorizing um, people as trusting or not trusting or neighborhoods as trusting or not trusting reminds me of people categorizing neighborhoods as you know good or not good right mm-hmm. or sketchy or not sketchy or whatever the whatever the euphemism that that mm-hmm. um, and and the other thing that makes me think about is when you mention people aging in place I wonder if part of what your work is looking at is people modifying their own place, right? If they're in a geographic you know, neighborhood, which is suboptimal in various ways, how they find their own, how they draw their own boundaries and, and redefine their own neighborhoods. Yeah, I, I think, you know, this is, the, the, and, and I think a lot of the work that's been done here is often on contiguous spaces, right? People redefining their own neighborhood boundaries uh, by not going to certain places that are, say, within walking distance and contiguous with what the quote-unquote official definition is, or shrinking the size, you know, I don't consider my neighborhood as broad as, say, you know, Middle East Baltimore, it's more of these two blocks. And there's been a lot of work there, but I think there's been less work about how people make sort of archipelagos of neighborhoods for themselves. So in the, in the case of your patient or in people in my study, and often, especially in African-American communities, the church is not right next door. Mm-hmm. The church is not in your community. You actually often have a lifelong connection to the church where, in which you grew up or in which a spouse or a partner grew up, or for some other reason you're attending a church that's in a different part of the city. And you even see this among uh, relatively wealthy, often in African-American communities, that there's been a lot of work on uh, people commuting back to the churches in the neighborhoods in which they grew up and what that might mean for the neighborhoods and for the people themselves. So I think there's a lot of work on how, how neighborhood creation gets done beyond sort of the very firm physical you know, borders on the map, uh, even beyond how people look at the borders on the map and then redefine that particular space, but how they extend themselves through space, uh, and through time for that matter, to, to try to figure out how to engage socially in ways that are meaningful to them and that they find productive. And again, we're not questioning that. I, I think for us, there was no question that that seems to be helpful for people. Uh, but the question is, how do we understand that? How, because the, the tendency is to want to prescribe a certain set of things uh, that, that people should be certain ways. And I, I think when you start looking at this as more life course or lifelong processes, it, it honestly, it makes, it, at least for me, it makes me humble about trying to say, okay, well, this person is like this and this neighborhood is like this, so this is what we do because it's a far more complex question than that. Yeah, the other the other flip side in terms of your patient is when you start thinking about treatment and harm reduction or other services that might come up for people who need those things. You know, do you do you try to locate them in the community and mm-hmm. do you even try to build communities of people where they are? Uh, so peer peer based groups, you know, in, in a geographic location. 
does, does that change the model? Does that change the paradigm in terms of how we think about these things? Mm-hmm. And how do we balance the idea that, say, for needle exchange or you know treatment modalities or you know whatever the case may be, how do we balance the idea that the people in these locations who already have these social networks are in really prime positions to know how things work and how things go on and, and maybe to support each other. And how do we balance that against what you were saying earlier, which is people getting people away from those those influences, from those networks, from those people, places, and things seems to be really powerful for their recovery. You know, what, what's the tension there between solidarity among the people who are affected and mobility and getting people away from it? And I, I don't think we have good answers to those questions right now. And I think... I like the word humility because I feel like as a, you know, as a practitioner, as a physician, and, and oftentimes in, in public health, there's a tendency to want to provide, provide solutions um, that are well-intentioned, but sometimes depend on these categories, which can be a lot more complex than at least I thought in, in, uh, previously. Um, and what, as you continue with this work, what do you think your next steps are? I know you're, you're working this, you're, you're writing and thinking about these ideas for publication, but is there a, uh, continuing interviews or are there sorts of, of analyses that you're preparing with regard to this sort of work? So, you know, the, the study that, that I was, that, that we opened with is, is at least my part of that is done and, and that's pretty much closed down in terms of all the things to keep it running. Uh, but I'm, very hopeful that I'll be able to get back to Baltimore in the near future uh, and in the other spaces. And one of the things that I'm really interested in is combining more of the, the geographic basis for some of these phenomena, for some of these processes with the more ethnographic or qualitative work that, that I was describing. And what I mean by that is, uh, you know, there, there's been increasing attention to these processes of, of redlining that took place in the 1930s, 1940s, uh, in terms of, of of the building blocks of today's present-day segregation and hypersegregation. And one of the things I'm working on in Wisconsin with the Applied Population Laboratory is assembling a set of, of those maps. Uh, and we're starting with actually Baltimore because of my link and then uh, four or five Wisconsin cities and digitizing those maps and trying to collect both quantitative data over which contemporary quantitative data as well as historical quantitative data so that we can overlay those data on top of the same geographic units to see what patterns emerge, but also link that up to work with communities and work with individuals in those communities, more ethnographic or qualitative work, to try to put those pieces together and say, okay, what, what sort of linkages do we see between neighborhoods? What sort of ruptures do we see? Over time, what processes have driven what sort of, not just social engagements at the individual level, which is more or less what we were limited to in this study, but can we look at uh, group connections? whether it's civil society, whether it's religion, you know, religious institutions like churches, whether it's government, uh, you know, including policing, but also in terms of schools or in terms of, of infrastructure and, and social services that governments provide, so that we can start thinking about, all right, if intervening at the individual level on these issues of trust and social engagement really doesn't make a ton of sense based on what we're seeing, uh, if even trying to put individuals together in groups to build trust or, or to repair trust in communities really doesn't look and then holistically embrace the processes that we've described and analyzed in, in this paper that, that I've talked to you about, what sort of institutions do need to come into play? How do we 
how do we think about social policies that affect neighborhoods and, and groups of neighborhoods and the institutions that span neighborhoods are embedded within them? Uh, and then how do we link that to, to historical trajectories that might inform us away from making the same mistakes that have happened or making assumptions that aren't correct about what's going on socially uh, and also bring communities into it themselves so that they can tell their own stories and how they fit into these larger patterns that say we see on the maps or in the data that we gather. So that's, that's the bigger picture, and I think part of this comes down to something I mentioned earlier about the, the everyday activities that people engage in, uh, and, and this idea of shut-in by design, which is where do people go and why do they go there, and, and how does that mediate this relationship between where they live and what their health is? Um, and that's everything, I think, from work to shopping to leisure. I think there's some really exciting possibilities for you know, exploring ideas of trust in, in other dimensions, whether that's brands that people trust or stores that people trust. Uh, you know, that there's been a renewed interest, for example, just right now in things like black ownership and black capital, black banking has had a research, resurgence of interest. If, if you're on, you know, social media and you're connected with groups that are working for civil rights, you're seeing a lot of that bouncing around. Right. And I think those pose really interesting questions in terms of what neighborhoods look like, how they fit together, and, and what sort of social determinants of health uh, we think might be at play, and, and how those are altering over time, and whether public health people in conjunction with communities should be trying to alter them over time. So I think those are all pieces of the puzzle that I'm thinking about, and, and that with other people I'm hoping to be able to start teasing out you know, over the next however many years. Great. Well, these are fascinating dimensions. and. Uh... You know, it, it's 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 exciting to watch people um, tease apart on a population and group and neighborhood level the things that I've, as a you know, casually and occasionally noticed in in the people I know in Baltimore. So, so thanks for sharing the work you're you're doing, Josh, and I you know, look forward to hearing more about it in the future. Thanks for giving me the opportunity to talk, and uh, I enjoyed it. Nice chatting. Have a good day. You too.